0: I really enjoyed getting to dig into the history of the Study Abroad photograph and to unearth these amazing artifacts of how Study Abroad looked, but also how it was framed. Because who is put in the photograph and what is behind them or around them. That tells the story.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of World Strides Inaugural Podcast, Changing Lives Through Education Abroad, a weekly series of conversations with international education's most interesting thought leaders, as well as discussions on emerging trends, best practices, and innovation happening in our field. I'm your host, Zach McKinnis, Senior Director of Campus Partnerships with World Strides, and I'm so excited about today's episode. Today, we're talking about student photographs, and how they capture their education abroad experience, the meanings of these photographs, and the cultural narratives they convey. I'm so pleased to be joined this week by a very special guest. Dr. Tim White is the Director of International Academic Initiatives at Montclair State University in New Jersey. Prior to joining MSU, Tim was Director of the Honors Program and an Associate Professor of History at New Jersey City University. Tim received his PhD in history from Columbia University and his BA in history from Dartmouth College. He's an interesting guy to say the least. Tim, welcome, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Could you start by describing your current role at
0: Montclair State University to us? As Director of International Academic Initiatives, our office is charged with supporting study abroad, first and foremost, that's the biggest part of our portfolio. We do a lot to recruit international scholars to come spend a semester or an academic year at Montclair State University. So that's why they've framed us as initiatives, plural. We do study abroad, we do Fulbright, and we also do a lot to support the inbound exchange students.
1: Excellent. Yeah. So it seems like you have just a little bit going on there at (laughs) Montclair. Well, thank you, Tom. You know, I've, I've really enjoyed, you know, getting to know you over the past few months and, and appreciating the unique lens you bring to education abroad as a historian. Last fall, you presented a session at the NAFSA Region 10 Conference regarding historical study abroad photographs. I have to say it was genuinely one of the best NAFSA sessions I have ever attended in my career. And as it turns out, NAFSA agrees. It was named best in region, I believe. Can you talk a little about your session?
0: Yes, that was really a thrill because in the session, I got to wear my historian hat and my study abroad hat at the same time. And I had also a fantastic co-presenter, Marissa Silva from One to World. And together, we brought a series of photographs to put before the attendees And we raised some very interesting questions that got the group thinking and also commenting and interacting with us. And as you know from going to so many of these conferences, the more interactive it can be, the better. So I really enjoyed getting to dig into the history of the Study Abroad photograph. And to unearth these amazing artifacts of how study broad looked, but also how it was framed. Because who is put in the photograph and what is behind them or around them, that tells a story. And that was really at the heart of our session was investigating those stories.
1: The stories our photographs tell and those of our students. I love it. Yeah. So, Tim, as a historian, can you talk about what changes and the evolution that you've noticed and how students depict themselves and others in uh, education or broader photographs taken over the years?
0: These are some of the most interesting characteristics because every decade there are subtle shifts from the 19-teens and 20s all the way until, you know, right now on Instagram, someone's posting A study abroad photograph, and that's going to look very different than it did 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So I'll start with some of the commonalities, because I found them striking. There's a big focus on the moment of mobility, of getting on a steamship originally. And there are these fantastic photographs, especially from the University of Delaware, where students are in groups getting onto a steamship and going to predominantly Europe. That was how it uh, rolled out originally. And they mirror the photographs of the 1980s of students from, let's say, AIFS getting onto a flight in a group with matching T-shirts and some fantastic 80s hairstyles. So capturing visually the mobility you know, reminding everybody that yes, we are traveling, we're going to go study abroad Um, is one of those charming commonalities. And of course, the type of travel changes, because other than semester at sea, not a lot of folks getting on a boat. Another massive shift that I've seen, the instinct of students to include themselves With various features of their study abroad location. So in ways that many a dean and provost and EA director would probably lament, the original study abroad photographs tended to be staged in libraries, in academic buildings, preferably with books. And there was a lot, you know, handshaking and posing with books, and it was like, hey everyone. We're using this photograph to show you a student studying in Egypt or studying in Berlin. See, there are books, and they were very conservatively dressed, and there was a formality of the exchange. And then, as you move it, later into the 20th century, there's more of a focus on the sightseeing. So it's interesting that the the messaging uh, opened up a little bit. And although there were plenty of photographs of students abroad in front of the Eiffel Tower or Big Ben or the Coliseum in the early part of the 20th century, what goes missing is those real formal portrayals of the student in a college hall or in a lecture auditorium in a library. Those staged sort of formal portraits seem to have gone by the wayside. And that relates to the ongoing struggle for all of us who do this work to make sure we feature the study part of study abroad.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, it seems like the, the, the emphasis at the outset really on, on the study and study abroad, like you said. So, you know, books and libraries and but almost could take place anywhere in the world. And, and then, you know, the evolution as we move through the century towards more on the abroad part of it. Yeah. And how do we combine those two? What do you think that this says about how students view their own identity in a changing world?
0: Well, there's definitely been a shift in how students are engaging the other. So if the university is the main location featured in your photographs, there seems to have been historically a focus on engaging the university You know, I am a student at the Sorbonne. I am a student at the American University in Cairo. There's a lot of focus on the university, whereas I think the identity of the student came more to be in the second half of the century. I am a broad student in Barcelona. I am a broad student in Shanghai, Beijing. There's more focus on the city. And sending back photographs and bringing home photographs and proof of having seen all the Amazing things. The student tends to stand in front of it, take a picture of me before the existence of the selfie. Someone had to take that photograph. Um, So it, it took longer. There was, of course, bringing home your negatives and eventually getting your photographs. And now we're in the age of the selfie, Instagram, And one of the things from an identity perspective that I'm sure you will recognize right away, and anybody listening will know what I'm talking about right away, is the student gazing out with their back to the camera. And this is uh, fascinating. It's an invitation for those viewing the photograph to see what I see. It has less emphasis on the person being photographed in some cases you can't even see their face so it's less um focused on that person and more about uh, an invitation to gaze upon this uh, or imagine yourself gazing upon this as i have um but as much as that is relatively more uh, selfless the selfie is everywhere and there are quite a lot of live videos reels photographs that uh, put the student not just at the center of the photograph but at the forefront with a giant face because there's only so long that your arm can be Even with the um, much maligned selfie stick, you're still the star of that photograph. And I think that has changed a lot of the identity issues related to study abroad. There's a sense that people are the star of their own study abroad story in the more recent media. Fascinating.
1: We all have smartphones in our pockets these days, and I'm certainly guilty of the selfie myself. And, you know, we snap pictures of of anything and everything in seconds. How can we get students thinking about the significance of a moment captured in time and the story that it tells?
0: Well, um, what I think the best strategy for that is just workshops, conversations, pre-departure orientations. And in our session, this is a piece that Marissa, from One to World, was able to uh, deal with quite well, because she was looking at the history of international student photographs and the way in which some things are better not captured. If there are histories, locations of oppression or injustice, um, places that might be uh, quite painful memories for a lot of individuals it's certainly not a good place for a selfie nor is it a place for a stage photograph so if we in the field make sure to talk to our students both inbound international students and also outbound study abroad students and we get them to really stop and think about the you know cultural sensitivities of any particular photograph they may want to take, we can equip them to make good choices and to be respectful of the people on the sidewalks and the around them that they're trying to capture in their photographs. I want to dig into that one a little bit more. What
1: are some some tips you would have for other international educators on how they can best prepare their students to use photos on their on their journey? Um, to reflect on their on their cultural learning while also being respectful of locals
0: so I think the best advice I could give and I suspect marissa would would concur is to weave together all of the excellent uh, cultural sensitivity and cross-cultural training that these um, teams are already providing to their students with suggestions on photography, uh, because the two go hand in hand. And if you're trying to engage with a group of students, or if you're trying to engage with the citizens of a particular location, and you're thinking about your workshop, and you're thinking about what your EA staff told you you should be mindful of and respectful of, how and when you take photographs, who you ask to be in the photographs, Um, these should always be at the forefront of a student's mind. So I'd say weaving together and not letting the social media photography piece stand entirely alone and separate. It is, in many locations, the primary way that a student interacts with local individuals. And you were there. We had a really fascinating discussion about, the transactional nature of asking somebody to take your photograph and whether there's any exchange of uh, small amounts of money for that, uh, they're doing things as a courtesy or they're asking um, to, will you get in the photograph with me? And these things are absolutely loaded with uh, meaning, power, identity. And we have to, I think, train our students to be the best cultural ambassadors and to be respectful in all types of settings.
1: In your research, is there a photo that you've come across that has brought you
0: absolute joy? Or one that you remember? (laughs) Honestly, I'm gonna reference a photograph that does have me in it. So I may be falling victim to making myself the star of my own study abroad story, but it is the photograph that brings me the most joy. I led a faculty-led program to Peru in 2012, so 10 years ago. And students and I host Machu Picchu, and they framed the photograph, and they presented it to me at the end of the program with written notes on the back of thanks. Uh, We did very well. We had good weather, good guides. We didn't have any... Flight interruptions. So, they had a good time. They learned a lot. It was my first ever foray into study abroad, faculty led. So, at this you know ten year mark of my career, uh, it brings me great joy because also I learned so much about the city of Cusco and how faculty led programs can and should be successful. So, for me, it was like this launch. And we got really lucky. So a lot of the joy is around the highly informed guide and the on-time trains and, you know, just a little bit of altitude sickness, just just a little bit. And so I have a lot of joy with that photograph.
1: Yeah, having the, the messages inscribed on the back, that's great. And then how can taking photos of their experience, Tim, contribute
0: to a student's
1: personal or intercultural growth while they're abroad?
0: If the student is asked by a faculty member in any of their classes or maybe upon return to be introspective, to analyze the photographs they've taken, it can really open up lots of learning about who they are in the world, who they, maybe who they were in their study abroad experience and who they want to be. A slight adjustment. I think that moment where you see yourself as a citizen of the world, that's a phrase people people often say, and you see yourself as something larger, can be really powerful for the growth of students, for their maturity. Uh, I also think when a student has one of these amazing international experiences, either an international student coming to the U.S. or a study abroad student going out, having this record of your time in country can help give you the confidence for another adventure. Maybe it's interviewing for a position that will require international travel or interviewing for a graduate program or any sort of job where you're gonna be needing to navigate an unfamiliar situation. And you have, if you have kept good records and you can think back of all those times you navigated a metro system, a map, an app uh, to get your food, to get your bus, to find your people. I think it can be very empowering for students to look forward and say, "I can do that."
1: Yeah, that's great. Uh, thank you for that. You, you know, one of the one of the things I found interesting about your your presentation is the types of students who were in, in the photos over the years. So, thinking about you know a hundred years ago. The groups that were getting on the ocean liners to head from delaware to paris you know, they were upper class white women right you know because that's what yeah. study abroad was when it, when it when it first started um but then you kind of saw the, the evolution over the years of you know men going on programs and students of color going on programs and different types of, of students with different types of identities How should we, as international educators, think about this, the depiction of diversity in the photographs that we put on our websites and in our market materials and and on social media?
0: Very carefully. (laughs) So it's absolutely true that as the field evolves and time passed, we see the inclusion of uh, more male students, more students of color, uh, first-generation college students, there's a lot more diversity. And this is something that's tracked in the, the Open Doors reports and everybody's working very hard to make sure that the mix of our study abroad students can look more like the mix of our college students in general. And so that progress is very real. But the the older history that you uh, mentioned is also very real. And what I find Quite fascinating and is usually a surprise to people who are not in the study abroad field is how much the women students just dominate. They absolutely dominate. Semester study abroad, winter J term, summer abroad, faculty led. It's just a thing. It's inherent in the field. It has been for decades and decades, and since at least the 1920s. And That is something that I'm not even certain we have to be working hard to fix, necessarily. I think the women are just doing very well in study abroad, so that's just part of the field, right? When it comes to students of color, Latino students, Black students, students who are of a minority on their home campus, uh, the reason I said careful is that, and this is something that I, I learned a lot from in the session. As speak, people were speaking up, right? And there's a tendency to find a photograph of a student of color or a diverse group of students and to feature that photograph in marketing materials because we want students to see themselves and study abroad, right? It, it feels good. It feels ethical. It feels inclusive to feature these great students from diverse backgrounds who do participate. But I'm sure you know, well know, and all of our listeners are well aware that upon arrival at a home campus in many study abroad locations, the diversity might be less than overall than what student had experienced in Chicago or Texas, Florida, California, Nebraska, whatever. So I think we have to manage expectations. And be very real with students that they may be the only person of their background in some places depends on, you know, every once in a while, those Australians, they just come out of the woodwork. There's like a bunch of them on a program. German students are very fond of traveling. So I think as long as people are thoughtful about uh, managing expectations and preparing students of color for the experiences they may have abroad, that it is good to celebrate the growing diversity. Uh, also, as long as people recognize that there's a lot more work to do, we can't just rest on our laurels. There's a reason why organizations like Diversity Abroad exist and do such great work because there's there's room for improvement, absolutely.
1: 100%. The work continues in our field yeah. in this area. And you have a, a unique lens on this, in particular, you know, given Montclair State student profile, I know it's a Hispanic-serving institution, at an HSI. Um, so are there any unique ways that you think about this topic, given the profile of your institution?
0: To answer that, I think I would include my experience both at New Jersey City University and also at Montclair State University so far. I've only been there six months at Montclair State, and we have a pretty decent alignment of the student demographics and the study abroad demographics except for male and female uh, where it skews heavily female and that's just something that is in the field but it's pretty decent and it was similar at new jersey city university but i had uh, the privilege of running the honors program for a couple years you mentioned that role And at that time, when um, the budgets were quite nice and everything, enrollment was up and everything was going pretty well at that university, we were paying for the lion's share of the honor student study abroad experiences. They were paying $500 maximum for a 10-day experience in China, Mexico, Ireland, Germany, you name it. So... What we found in that experience is that because the students were really going because they were in the honors program and because not because they had self-selected and shown up at the office and had been encouraged by a family member necessarily, we had a much greater representation of campus diversity within our honors study abroad than we did in some of the other programs. Uh, and I've st- started to see, I'm I'm new, but we have a little bit of that in some of the disciplines that are very active. For example, the theater program is quite active in going in the summer and taking their students on these theater immersion programs. And because they recruit from their majors and they don't have a, they're very exclusive. You have to be admitted to be a theater student at Montclair State and you have to audition and everything. So they're able to produce a relative diversity because the diversity of their study abroad programs tends to mirror the diversity of their overall program quite nicely. So I think the more a department or a discipline makes a study abroad opportunity available to all and provides a course that they know the students will need, the better they're able to harness the inherent diversity of the the campus population.
1: You know, I've been thinking a lot about Gen Z lately, as, as a lot of us are doing in our field, and, you know, they tend to appreciate authenticity and each other's stories in a way that the millennials and previous generations just didn't value quite as much. And so I've been thinking about how, how can we amplify authentic student stories and authentic student photographs in a way that advances our goals to get more students abroad?
0: Well, the short answer, I suppose, is is Instagram. Just lean on in. Uh, The students love it. They're on it. They like posting. They like sharing. And the Instagram takeover is a popular method for allowing the student to provide not just one snapshot of themselves, but a whole series of, of course, as a Gen Z person, Beautifully edited, set to music, images, video footage of them really having this fantastic experience. So my philosophy as a director of a certain age, I'm definitely not Gen Z. (laughs) I think getting out of the way and letting the students shine in the ways that they know how and letting the engagement of the home campus students uh, be authentic because it's a one-to-one. It goes directly from that uh, study abroad student's phone into the phones of our followers on Montclair Abroad, one word, on Instagram. You got to plug the, the name too.
1: And, and I, you know, I, I think that, that your office does a great job with, with social media, Tim. So Thank I you. do recommend our followers check it out at Montclair Abroad. And I wanna I wanna shift gears just a little bit. I, I, I believe, Tim, in your in your spare time, you lead historical tours of, of New York City. Yes. Um I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that and how uh, if at all, that that experiences of appreciating place and, and and history have informed the way you prepare students for study abroad.
0: Absolutely. So I because I was arriving in New York City. As a graduate student, I was 22 years old, and I needed income. I I was trying to survive in New York City. I very quickly, within my first few months, uh, picked up Walking Tours. And there was a fantastic company called Big Onion Walking Tours, where the whole premise was they only hired PhD students or recent PhDs in history, architecture, urban studies, or the occasional art historian who was allowed to lead tours. But other than that, it was people who were reading in these disciplines and and building their knowledge and could provide a high-level academic tour of a given neighborhood of New York City. What I also got to do over many, many years, I did about 10 years as a paid guide. And then I went to New Jersey City I started doing the tours for students in my classes for free. But then I also started charging other organizations and the money went to study abroad scholarships. So I had this like very niche skill and and knowledge base. And I knew it was a popular uh, way to spend a day. And so I was able to harness that to raise some scholarship funds. So that was a lot of fun. But through all of this, for many, many years, one of the things that I, I learned profoundly is that leading it in a walking tour, is very much a skill. It's a particular type of sharing knowledge and information. And I wrote articles about this. I participated. There was a fantastic book um, by a scholar named Wynne, W-Y-N-N. And there's a lot of people who have looked at the walking tour and started to pick it apart. And think about what makes them effective, what makes them entertaining, what makes them informative. And so I realized at a certain point that my skill at leading walking tours applied in other cities as long as I did my homework. Because some of the things about pacing, navigating, um, unexpected construction sites, and people, um, you know, double parking and honking where you literally, you cannot stop in front of building X because there's some angry Parisian van driver just like yelling and honking, right? So you have to walk to an alternate location. It requires incredible um, flexibility. And I, I, I enjoyed, I wrote a couple articles about this in the NJCU academic forum about how you have to be completely willing to shift to another topic or to another building at a moment's notice. Because I gained confidence in those skills, I was able to do some walking tours on study abroad, where I would, let's say there's two faculty leads. And if I were the number two, I would offer a guest lecture or a guest walking tour. So the main professor would take the students to a museum and I wouldn't go. I would spend the day mapping my route, brushing up on all my research, making sure I had all of the information accurate. and then. I would use my skills to take the students on a walking tour of the neighborhood. And they were like, how are you walking around and knowing where you're going? And I was like, because I was here yesterday. I've been studying urban history for many years. And I also have this experience at doing this type of tour. You know, in a classroom, people don't like walk in and shout at you or tell you getting things wrong, asking, why are you here? gentrification. There's not like this like public just coming at you at every turn. People aren't honking their horns inside your classroom as a college professor unless you're having a really bad day. So I really enjoyed getting to take that skill and apply it in these locations because it, I was able to learn also so much in the process of seeing what I had read about one day and the next day taking the students and asking them to stop and look and to analyze with me. So that's a little bit more about the walking tour aspect, um, which is still, I'm still leading them for the exchange students who study with us. I take them into the city and like my calendar on some dates is like taking the exchange students to Chinatown. Sorry, no meetings today, but it really is a delight. I enjoy it very much. And you should come on one of these.
1: I was about to ask if I'm invited to him. I'd love to. I think. And now we're recording. So you're invited. <laughs> so this year, we are celebrating World Stride's 55th anniversary by collecting the life changing moments of students and past participants on our programs. It's been a lot of fun to, to read everyone's stories. And I know you've had a lot of your own international experiences as well. So I'm curious. What was your life-changing moment?
0: So I did two study abroads as a young undergraduate, uh, one in Mexico and one at Oxford University through uh, like a third party affiliate. So the first experience was really profound because I had chosen Spanish as my language. I grew up in Southern California playing soccer with a lot of Mexican students. And I was somewhat integrated in with a, Diverse population, but the campus was relatively segregated socially. So I had from going up in Southern California as, you know, privileged white male, I didn't have probably the best understanding or respect for Mexican history, Mexican culture, and the nation of Mexico. A lot of what I thought I knew about Mexico was rooted in stereotype and really unfortunate cultural things that were happening in Southern California in the 1980s and 1990s. So I go on the study abroad to Mexico, and it completely revolutionized the way I thought about that nation, its history relative to the United States, about my place in the world, relative to everyone else. And I think it was very humbling. I really turned a corner and I I think it helped me to be a much more intercultural, respectful person. I was, I was young. I didn't really understand a lot about the world and boy, did I, I get a lot of immersion. We even signed a pledge that we wouldn't speak English while we were there. So it was a full-on language immersion run by Dartmouth College. And they would listen and they would tell us, you know, hey, hey, we heard you speaking English at the cafeteria. Let's go. Come on, you signed a pledge. So they were quite serious about it. My Spanish skills increased by leaps and bounds. But my understanding of another culture outside the United States, even one right on the border, right, just grew profoundly. Uh, the other experience that was quite an eye opener, I was in these uh, one-on-one seminars with a, with an Oxford don, and the educational model is these you know intense one-on-one conversations, and then these papers, and you have to hand over the papers in person because it was the nineties, and I remember this Oxford don really pushing me and challenging me on my descriptions of the british empire and the end of the british empire and i think it was for my knowledge of of history in general just a real wake-up call that you know everyone has their own interpretation and that varies by culture by nation even within the united kingdom if you're welsh or you're irish there are a lot of people who have a different understanding, a different lived experience. And it was, it was a wake-up call on the history profession. And that ended up being my professional path. So I did the whole PhD thing. And all the while, I was less quick to assume that I had it figured out because of that, the dawn challenging me to really question my assumptions. Yeah, I love that. You know, I had my my
1: formative first international experience was in Mexico too, and as a as a native Texan, it's it was just so so rewarding to see how much I can learn from you know 500 miles from where I grew up. So
0: yeah, thank, thank you for sharing yeah.
1: that. As you think about education abroad in 2023, what makes you hopeful?
0: What makes me hopeful is that there's this resilience. It doesn't always go. It doesn't always work when we advise the students, we try to get them on programs, but the, the desire is there. I will say it's been quite noticeable after the worst of the COVID pandemic, uh, people leaving their homes, leaving their families, leaving the comforts of what all that they know. Uh, I think it's been uh, a steeper hurdle, but there's this resilience where the students They have an idea and they really want to see it through. And I know when they come back multiple times to our office, I I know, okay, this is a student who's going to figure it out. And they might have to switch programs because, oh, well, wait a minute. This one has a different start date or this one has different financial aid implications. And there's, as you know, there's so many details that go into study abroad. But as long as that resilience doesn't go away, and the students are going to try to make it work, I think we can build back up our numbers and we can get those students out there learning. And um, it gives me a lot of hope. Here, here. Well,
1: I, yeah. I can't imagine a better place to end it than, than right there. Thank you so much, Tim. And, and, and thank you to all of our listeners for joining us for this episode of Changing Lives Through Education Abroad. I'm your host, Zach McKinnis, and make sure to join us next week as we continue to explore topics around international education and exchange. Please subscribe and share with your friends and colleagues. Let's create life-changing moments together.